Don't even begin to think that I have come to do away with the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. I say to you very seriously that as long as heaven and earth exist, neither the smallest letter nor even the smallest stroke of pen will be erased from the law until everything there becomes a reality. Therefore, whoever ignores one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the lowest in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps these commands and teaches people to keep them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I say to you that unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the legal experts and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I always try to get a kid to read um, about really hard passages. <laughs> uh, so Jesus continues in this sermon on the mount. Last week he uh, talked about salt and light, and it's, it's really helpful and it's really heartening to realize that Jesus' main ethical teaching in the New Testament can all be read in one sitting in about, I don't know, 10, 10 minutes, 15 minutes if, if you're a slower reader, um, which is a, a brilliant way to, to continue to come back to these touch points, this Sermon on the Mount to uh, normal people in a normal place, something like this today. So Jesus follows up his salt and light teaching in the Sermon on the Mount with a discipleship course. And Noah read kind of the, the intro thought uh, to that discipleship course. Here's where Jesus' ethical rubber hits the real-life road. Jesus isn't content when he's teaching ethics or discipleship, how to live. He's not content to cast some vision of the good life in hypothetical terms. This is more art than science. If you go to, the, to anyone on the street, and it, you've probably seen this on a late night television show where they go up and ask people on the street when people were on the street together and, and ask them a question and get hilarious answers. And so I wonder if you go up to someone on the street and ask them what their main guiding vision for who Jesus is most like, what they would say. I think some people might say things like a guru, a spiritual guru like the Dalai Lama. Um, <laughs> some people might say like a sage philosopher like Plato. Some people might just do like the greatest, biggest uh, thing they could think of and, and think of, you know, the, cur the current or like top five list of rich people because that's that's how bound their vision of greatness is is to economic success in the christian tradition there's even all these kind of streams that are kind of versions of of our ideal of what jesus might be like you know the some of us might first thing that pops to head some eccentric kind of desert mystic that is bound up in uh, contemplative uh, faith. Some of us might think like a dogmatic European reformer. Some of us might think of a horseback circuit rider. Shout out to the Methodists out there. Some of us might think of uh, like a tent revivalist. 
Shout out to the Pentecostals out there. Some of us might think of a marcher on the Freedom Highway, right? right? We have all these these different visions of who Jesus is and how Jesus is. And to be honest, it's probably some mixture of all of these things. Jesus is telling us how to live on his own terms in granular terms. The word made flesh is making his words flesh and blood. Dallas Willard calls this, uh, what he's tapping into, calls it the guts of human existence, right? Jesus is saying this with his whole chest. This is the concrete good news that deals with the things that we've been dealing with all six days of the week, and then we come here on the 7th, and, and some of these things we're probably dealing with this morning as you pack the kids up, like violence or thoughts about violence, no? <laughs> Jesus' concrete good news is about violence, and it's about anger. It's about our ability and often our inability to make and to keep vows with each other. So this is real-life stuff. This is practical and practic- uh, like practicable stuff. Uh, Stanley Harawas once said, and he was, I think, referring to God in the book of Leviticus with all those Uh, the minutia of household rules and purity laws, but I think it also applies to Jesus preaching on this mountainside. Stanley says, any God who won't tell you what to do with your pots and pans and genitals isn't worth worshiping. And that's, that's a little bit of something that's going on here. Jesus is asking deep questions about relationships and anger and hopes and fears. Jesus knows if we're going to have new life in this coming kingdom, we must know how to live. Because the kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. We're not being transported somewhere else, somewhere more ideal. God has come to us and is making home among us. So Jesus identifies a tendency in his audience that Noah, Noah read about, and I think this tendency still holds even today. When freedom arrives, the tendency is to want to throw out all of the old. It's too triggering. It's too, it reminds you of bad things. You throw out often the baby with the bathwater. Wasn't it restrictive and harming and missing the point religion after all? Haven't we evolved beyond the letter of the law? I imagine these things are the chatter on that hillside. And shouldn't we move past those warnings of the prophets that sometimes did or sometimes didn't come true? To that, Jesus gives a stern reminder. I haven't come to do away with them, the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. The arrival of the kingdom of God isn't an invitation to move past or beyond or to supersede what God has done in the past, even the places where God has used, I think the expression is crooked sticks to draw straight lines. That's a little bit of all of our story, right? But instead it is, it is to more deeply uh, figure out how to embrace those things in a way that is true and life-giving in the coming kingdom. After all, the stone the builders rejected has become foundational, fundamental to the whole thing, the piece that holds the building together, the first brick in this brick-by-brick building of the kingdom. So maybe that's where you are today, 
or maybe that's a season you've been in recently, this like deconstruction phase. Uh, I, I, love, I love how our faith has a, a, a building metaphor, like just inherently, right? And, and so deconstruction is, is actually often necessary for building. To your ears, it might have even seemed like uh, it would be better news for Jesus to just like come to do away with the old, to clear the ground, and just to start over from scratch. Maybe that sounds like better news than going in this really tough, really difficult, really taxing process. But hang in there. Trust the process. It always takes more time. It always takes more work. It always takes more creativity and skill and more attention to repurpose something, to reconstruct something, rather than to just go in with sledgehammers for demo day and to wipe everything out and start over. Like everyone volunteers for, for demo day. No one is really into like sanding and painting trim, right? <laughs> Heirlooms aren't dispensable and they're also not built overnight, right? Jesus is showing us that this is the way. Jesus is showing us that we're not called out of all of these really uh, minutia negotiations, but rather further into them. That's what the stuff of life is about. He knows us. He knows our greatest hopes and our greatest fears and our greatest memories and our greatest traumas, the ways we flee and the ways we fight and the capacity that we are being given to stick and to stay and to persist. So Jesus begins the building. He begins describing just as he did with the blessings. This is not his, his like 101 course. He's, he's actually looking around and seeing the kingdom breaking in and trying to tell them about it. It's, it's very kind of a Mary Oliver approach to this whole thing, right? He's inviting us to stand shoulder to shoulder with him to gain a vision and to see what the kingdom looks like in our lives. He begins seeing the pecking order, those first in line in the kingdom, the early adopters. The tricky thing and the thing that always drives different kinds of fundamentalists, either conservatives or progressives, the things that drives them crazy about Jesus is that righteousness for Jesus is never primarily about what we do or what we have done or even what we've wrapped our mind around if that was so, the, quote, very serious religious people would have the corner on the kingdom market. But Jesus tells us it's those who trust in God enough to keep commandments and to teach commandments to others. Those who trust this kingdom-bringing, law and prophets-fulfilling Jesus to subvert and to satisfy to subvert and to satisfy their hopes and fears. Everything you thought about God, Jesus is at some point probably going to subvert and at another point is probably going to satisfy. Let's get used to that. And what follows, Jesus begins to expose. Expose their and our propensity to try to do anything to avoid losing. Who's competitive out there? <laughs> Uh, it's, it's hard to preach in a congregation with your parents here because they can probably tell you all sorts of stories that ended in fistfights with me and my brother because of our dueling competitiveness. But isn't that a little bit 
about how most of us live our lives as if the worst thing in the world would be that we might lose. Obviously, the extreme example of that is that we might lose our, our actual life, but this, this major fear and this deep-seated driving uh, thing about us often trickles up into those small things that we just don't want to lose. We just don't want to be wrong. We just don't want to lose the argument. I mean, look at the list that follows the passage that Noah read. We, we, we clipped it uh, for length today, but go back this week. Read the whole Sermon on the Mountain. Hone in on this list. Jesus says, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't leave someone high and dry in divorce. Don't bear false witness. Each case that Jesus tackles is an attempt to win, or at least an attempt not to lose. It's an attempt to be the last person standing. You only go as far to murder someone if you think that life is this zero-sum cage match that only one person is going to get out alive. You only commit adultery, cheat on someone, if you're so myopic and opportunistic that you're looking out for your needs, your desires, your next feeling of being desirable. Jesus is a realist about divorce. He's a realist that divorce is messy and marriage is even more messy sometimes. <laughs> Left to our own devices, we'd, we'd bail to protect ourselves. Regardless of what happens to the one we're with, Jesus is not talking about abusive marriage. That's something, something altogether different. Jesus is actually talking about abusive divorces in his culture. So that's probably another time in another sermon. And then Jesus, when he says, don't bear false witness, don't lie. Stop lying. Tell the truth. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, only the cross as God's truth, this emptying, suffering truth that is at the center of our lives and in the center of our vision, only, God's, only the cross as God's truth about us makes us truthful. Those who know the cross no longer shy away from any truth, so we don't lie. We don't bear false witness, even if it means that we're going to lose or even if it means that we're wrong. We've all, we've all learned how to lie since we were kids. Everyone knows that bending or downright dispensing with the truth is the best way to get people to like you, especially when you don't like yourself very much. We lie to ourselves whenever we come scarily close to the truth that we don't measure up to what we think we should be. But Jesus has already blessed us. We've already had that string of beatitudes. All of those things that Jesus offers a blessing to are not necessarily aspirational things. They're often the things that we lie about so that we wouldn't be, and Jesus has already told us we're blessed. So Jesus isn't giving us unfollowable advice. Oftentimes the Sermon on the Mount is looked at by some school of interpreters as this really difficult, maybe even impossible teaching by Jesus so that if, so that, you know, we'll trip and fall and come short and then beg into the mercy of God. But actually, I don't think that this is unfollowable advice. He's talking about the concrete good news. He's bearing witness to the coming kingdom reality 
that is so real, we should think about shaping our lives around it. Wisdom dictates that we would. Otherwise, we'll be even more out of step and even more out of place as God's mercy continues to come and God's righteousness rolls like a never-ending stream. The last in line, uh, if we'd be the last in line if we don't embrace this wisdom, if we don't start to make changes and choices around it. The way we move in this world may work in this world right now. It may fit with the patterns of the world, but it won't always be so. That's the good news. That's why Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So Jesus gives us a crash course in this type of losing that's actually winning. A losing that's actually winning. A vulnerability towards losing that is actually opening us up to embrace Christ's victory for us. It's a sort of down and downward mobility that is actually up. The head of the line has flipped. It's a sort of dying that is actually living, and it's a life worth living. And it's a sort of emptying that is actually fulfilling for us. Will y'all, will y'all pray with me? Jesus, these are, these are hard words. These are, this is a hard vision because it clashes so much with how we're used to living in this world. The defense mechanisms that we've built up so high that they've actually become our personalities often. Lord, give us courage to, to look at, at each of these um, little anecdotes of the kingdom and, and to embrace the logic behind them, even if, even if uh, something like murder isn't the closest thing on our minds today. Transform our anger, even if um, actually cheating isn't on our radars. Transform our lust. And above all, Lord, give us, give us enough. Give us more than enough. And give us assurance that losing is not the end of the world because you've given us everything. Lord, we thank you for this concrete, flesh and blood, real life teaching. Help us embrace it with our lives. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.